This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, but really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. Welcome, guys, to the Behind the Shield podcast. My name is James Gearing, and I am so proud to announce that this is episode 300. So the podcast is now about three and a half years old. I started it in my little boy's bedroom recording, leaning over a chair. And uh, here we are now, 300 episodes later. Now, as you know, I like to kind of benchmark each 100. The first was with my wife. The second was kind of a Q&A and then with my sons as well. Um, well, this week, I am so proud to bring on George Ryan. Now, George is a three-decade career law enforcement officer. He's taught defensive tactics. He's taught SWAT, hostage negotiations. And he's also one of the OGs in the CrossFit world, the founder of CrossFit Striking. So such an incredible person to bring on during this momentous episode, if you like. But what made it more pertinent is George told me that his SWAT operator number was 300. So we tied that in. It was a beautiful kind of marriage of a guest that I've been trying to get on for a long time with uh, something that was pertinent for him as well. So I'm really looking forward to you guys listening to this conversation. Uh, he's got a very interesting story of how he went into the martial arts um, and then obviously a very long career at the high level in law enforcement as well and fitness. So before we get to the episode, as I've said 300 times now, I'm assuming, please just take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this on. So whether it's Spotify, iTunes, Google, whichever app that you use, subscribe to the show that lets you know when the next episode comes out. Leave feedback. I really do enjoy reading what you write there. So take a moment to leave a note if you can. 
and then leave a rating. The five-star ratings that we get do make us more visible to people looking for a podcast like this. And with 300 episodes, I want to underline, this is a free library. So wherever you are on planet Earth listening to this, use these for yourself, for the men and women you work with, for people you know. You can use it in your training department. You can send it to people you know that are struggling. But we have got everything on here from physical health, mental health, incredible stories of overcoming adversity. And I honor those guests by making sure that their stories get to every single person that needs to hear it. So if you have any way at all of sharing or using this library for yourself to make the world better, please, please do. So with that being said, I introduce to you George Ryan. Enjoy. George, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking some time in self-isolation to come on the Behind the Show podcast. Well, thank you, James. Thank you for having me as a guest, and it's an honor to be on your show. Thank you. And whereabouts on planet Earth are we finding you today? You're finding me in Southern California. Beautiful. All right. So I love to start at the very beginning. So first proper question, where were you born and what was your family dynamic like? What did your parents do? Okay. I was born in Boston, Massachusetts. I was actually born in the city and grew up there and two lovely parents. My dad was a letter carrier for the post office. My mom stayed at home, helped raise us. Uh, Eventually, she ended up being a server at a restaurant that she absolutely loved. She did that for 30 years. I have a sister, two brothers. And, you know, looking back, I, I believe I absolutely had a blessed childhood. One incident stands out in my mind that kind of helped shape the way I look at the world. And when I was in school, we ended up moving out of Boston uh, about 20 minutes south. And I actually grew up in a housing project. And I remember going to school and one of my buddies, I asked him to come over to my house and play. And he said he'd go home and ask his mom, Well, the next day he comes to school and says, hey, I can't come over your house because you live in the projects. And I really didn't know what that meant. So I asked my dad, I said, hey, dad, you know, I'll just make up a name here. Jim can't come over the house because uh, we live in the projects. And my that's when my dad kind of sat me down and he told me, you know, it isn't where you live. It is how you live. That's important. And this is what we do. We go to school, we get good grades, we play sports, we go to church on Sundays, and bottom line, you know, we are good people. So I don't want you to focus on where we live. There's a lot of great people here. And honestly, James, I I didn't know the the difference of where I lived or where my buddies lived, but that really – had an impact on me growing up. And I still remember that lesson to this day, that when you meet somebody, it it isn't where they live, it is how they live. Yeah, I I had a similar lesson, but in a very different way. When I was growing up, I grew up on a farm. So my dad was a horse vet, and the small animal vet as well. But we would have all kinds of people come through the doors, you know, from literally from um, travelers, you know, gypsies all the way through to royalty. And I don't mean that in any scale, um, just, you know, obviously wealth, financial wealth. 
And it was the same thing. We we were told and we could see with our own eyes that there were just two types of people, nice people and assholes. That was it. It didn't matter how much money they had, you know. So, yeah, a very similar lesson that I got. Wow. Yeah. No. So and again, we eventually uh, moved out of that neighborhood um, to another area close by where we moved into a townhouse. But yeah, that lesson uh, stuck with me and, and stays with me to this day. Brilliant. And you mentioned that uh, we spoke before, but your dad almost became a police officer. Yes. He had an opportunity to join the Massachusetts State Police. And at that same time, he was offered a job with um, as a mailman you know, to work as a letter carrier for the U.S. Post Office. And so looking at both options, the letter carrier position allowed him to stay in Boston close to his family and friends. And being a Massachusetts police officer, I should state police officer, he would have to go out to Western Massachusetts and the pay was significantly less. And as a, uh, you know, newly married man and a new dad, um, the option to him was obvious. He was going to stay in the city close to his parents, his siblings, uh, my mom's uh, siblings and family. So, uh, yeah, and, and here we are. Yeah, and in, in this, this current um, climate, is funny because people are realizing, obviously, that law enforcement is imperative, but actually that, that occupations like mail carriers are one of the ones that we realize how much we rely on. Absolutely, yeah. No, I was always very proud of him of what he did. You know, and but yeah, it, it definitely worked out for the best. Yeah. Now, you also mentioned that um, your dad taught you boxing. So tell me about that. Yeah. So it's funny when people ask me about my striking background, I just laugh and say, you know, I was born into this. My dad was a boxing coach. And so since I can remember, I've been throwing, you know, combinations, strikes. And I even remember him using a pillow when I was really, really young to throw combinations. And, you know, we used to have this routine on the weekends where we would play the oldies and, you know, the music in the background and, you know, the, so the 50s music and, you know, the songs are about, you know, two and a half, three minutes long. And those were our rounds. And I throw combinations on the pillow and we eventually got his blue Air Force duffel bag. We stuffed it with clothing and we used clothesline to basically hang it from a beam in my cellar. And I would pound on that bag for hours. <laughs> and so some of my fondest memories is listening to the oldies, doing combinations on the bag and my dad teaching me the finer art of uh, boxing, if you will. But there was one stipulation. He would not allow me to spar. He did not want me fighting at a very young age. And that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to compete. I really wanted to compete. And he said, no, I need you to wait till you're a teenager. And I remember him pointing at my head and telling me, I need you to be able to think with that thing when you're older. And he goes, I don't want you getting hit. And again, back then, we didn't know what we know about CTE, concussions, but intuitively and probably from training and experience that, that he knew it probably wasn't good to have your brain rattled consistently with the sparring and the competing at such a young age. So he asked me to wait till I was a teenager. Yeah, and that's so so intelligent. And it's funny because I, I think back to some of the older boxes when I was tiny and, you know, that, that punch drunk, that, uh, you know, what they later uh, 
called um is it parkinson's pugilista i think it's called um but yeah i mean that was so evident and it's it's crazy how now in in ice hockey in in football um you know though it's it's like it's a revelation in 2020 like oh we get it if you get hit in the head it's bad for the brain you know and it's why 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 were we not figuring this out a long long time ago you know i i think we always knew it uh i think we knew it intuitively because you know we've seen some of the great boxers over time their cognitive skills declining i think people in the gym and if you spent a long time in a gym you probably noticed a shift in, in some people's, you know, cognitive ability. So I, I think we knew, but it's an amazing sport. It's it's a sport of skill, strategy, tactics. You know, it gives you an amazing physical conditioning, and it helps build that indomitable will. So. I think we knew, <laughs> but I think a lot of folks just wanted, you know, to somewhat not think of it or put it up front, if you will. Yeah, I've had a few, you know, fighters and, and trainers. I just had Greg Jackson on, who's trained some of the best MMA fighters on the planet. Oh, yes, um, absolutely. And, you know, I'm seeing over and over again, a lot of these gyms now are really gating back on the intensity of sparring because of the same thing. They're getting their, their fighters so beaten up. But by the time they fight, they're you know they're they're not 100. percent So I think the less is more that we're seeing in in the strength and conditioning world, which we'll talk about in, in a while. Um, we're seeing even even in the combat sports. No, no, that's that's a good point. And I remember talking to a world famous brain doctor, and he told me, "You can't get good at being hit in the head." Like the more you get hit in the head, you don't build up adaptation, you know, you, you don't build up a tolerance. No, you actually get worse. So again, the little bit I know uh, about brain health, yes, if there's any folks out there listening and they're fighters and they're training to be fighters, you want to minimize getting hit in the head. There are other things you can do. There are other pressure drills that you can do to be a fine martial artist without getting your brain shook uh, on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. Right, well, I think that your journey into the martial arts is a fascinating story as well and it includes a legend that a lot of people haven't heard his name for a little while. So tell me about your neighbor and how, how your journey led into the martial arts. Yeah, so when I was a teenager, and again, I was living in a different neighborhood, we had a new neighbor move in across the street and, you know, after you got settled, uh, I remember maybe about a week or two later, I'm down the basketball court and, and I'm shooting hoops. And I remember him walking down the hill and he was the most muscular, ripped human being I'd ever seen. And I tell people he looked like a real life superhero. And he asked me if, if he could shoot hoops. And I said, Oh, absolutely. So, you know, we're shooting baskets and I'm watching him move and jump. And he, he just moved like a professional athlete. And I asked him what he did and he told me, and, and this is what he said. He said, Oh, I, I, I'm a karate man. And I did not know what that is. And then he further explained that he was a professional fighter uh, on the martial arts circuit. And he was a multiple, uh, gold medal winner in AAU. He ultimately became a seven-time world champion, and his name was Billy Blanks. 
And most of your listeners will know the name Billy Blanks associated with Tybo. And that's something he created years after I had met him. But my first two years of my martial arts journey that began, again, martial arts in 16, I was with Billy. And I started training with him in his backyard, with him and his cousin George. And what an amazing experience that was because Billy put so much emphasis on physical conditioning and impeccable technique. It was an absolute blessing to train with somebody uh, of that caliber. Yeah. Now, you said um, with the physical conditioning, tell me, you know, some of the the drills that he would do back then, because obviously this was way before CrossFit as we know it now. Yes. I remember training with his cousin, George, and we would put this weight vest on and it was made of sand. It was canvas and sand and would have to jump up on this high rock up and down, up and down. And Billy Blanks was the first person I had ever seen do plyometrics. And I did not know the name of the exercises that we were doing, but everything was explosive. There was a lot of plyometrics. There was hill sprints. There was hundreds and hundreds of push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups. We were we had this really light weight bar, and we would have to get in a horse stance, and we'd have to punch that out twenty-five times, uh, you know, put it down, and then do some footwork drills. And these were all movement patterns and exercises I'd never seen before. But um, Billy Blanks and his cousin George were doing these in the mid '80s. And they, again, and watching them move, watching them fight, they were just on a different level than any other martial artist or uh, fighter I had ever witnessed. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I remember when I was little, um, I was so into the martial arts myself. I had all Bruce Lee's books. I even had a, a Wing Chun dummy. I had no idea how to use it <laughs> to this day. Um, but there was some, I think it was his name was Joe Lewis. I think it was a white yes. karate guy. Um, yes. He used to cycle everywhere on an old beat-up bike, and that's how he said he built up his legs. There was a female kickboxer, Kathy Long, who yes. basically invented what now we would call a you know altitude mask or a resistance mask, but she used um, diving tubing when she worked out. So some of the things that we now understand, some of these people were were you know creating way back then to to really push their physical and uh, endurance levels. Yes, it, you know. I think back when I started learning martial arts, there wasn't a whole lot of emphasis on physical conditioning. However, that's where Billy Blanks was different. And he he was just an amazing athlete. Uh, And we also had the opportunity to have multiple world champions come through Billy's school. They would actually stay with him at his house. And they would be at the school every night for a week and they would teach class. And so I got to train with multiple world champions during that time. I actually met Joe Lewis. I actually got to train with Joe Lewis and watching him move. And again, I thought he was an old guy because he was in his 40s. You know, get that, right? <laughs> but but watching him move and how powerful he was, you, you can see why he was a, um, a, the world heavyweight champion in uh, martial arts and kickboxing back in the day. Yeah. Yeah, there were so many amazing names. Benny, Benny the Jet Okides, Bill Superfoot yes. Wallace, where he basically destroyed one of his legs so he would kick all off that one one side. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and he had that left leg, and he could actually use 
that left leg like a hand, you know? So again, because your hands are so economical, whether it's a self-protection scenario or in a tournament where you're competing, the hands are very economical because we use them all the time. So that's why we have increased accuracy. So the way Bill used his left leg was like a hand because he did everything with his left leg. So he's able to hit his opponents multiple times with that left leg, you know, with multiple kicks without putting his leg down. Yeah, it was. Absolutely. And then you think about it, you know, you see these people that were born with no arms and they're able to draw, you know, and cook, and cook food <laughs> yes. with their feet, you know. So it, it is. It's fascinating. And the other thing that I find amazing, um, and I, I think I, I would discover this in university, but you try writing your name with your other hand, your non-dominant hand, of which you probably never really practiced it before. You're still able to 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 do a similar job with that other hand so if the right side of the body or one one limb is able to learn it the other one is actually learning about 60 percent of what the right one's doing without ever practicing it no that that's a great point and when i work with athletes i'll have them do you know their first round or their third round whatever like every other round in a different stance so for example if you're in a conventional or an orthodox stance I'll ask you to do those same combinations from a southpaw stance. And it's incredible on how well people actually do. And then when you switch back to your regular stance or your conventional stance, it seems even easier. <laughs> so it's it's a little drill you can try at home. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Well, it's funny, I'm, I'm actually, during the self-isolation, I'm making myself strike again i was telling you i'm doing gymnastic work and then the 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 rest between i'm drilling kicks but my god i started doing some of the spinning ones that i used to be able to do you know so <laughs> so well won national championships it looks like an 80 year old trying to find the you know trying to have his bum to wipe it it's, it's, it's awful so i got a long way to go i think this we need a lot more isolation before i'm going to get this right <laughs> yeah just remember smooth is fast you know break it down in small bits and It'll come. Yeah. It'll definitely come back. Yeah. And don't try and kick the head because you can't yet. That's what I've learned too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then moving on. So, um, again, your kind of childhood age, your your high school years, what were your career aspirations? Yes. Since I can remember, I wanted to be a police officer. And I'm going to go way, way back. I was a fan of Batman. I wanted to be Batman. I was convinced I was going to be Batman. Um, you know, still living with my mom. I was trying to figure out where we would put the Batcave. And then I realized, you know, oh, Batman's not real. And I said, okay, I got to find another job here. And <laughs> it was about that time I was watching Adam 12. I'm watching Dragnet. There was another television show on back in the day. And I'm dating myself called SWAT. And back, even back then at a young age, I wanted to be a police officer. I wanted to have an occupation where I was put in a position to help people. Uh, I wanted to be one of the good guys. And so, yes, ever since I can remember, this is the profession that, uh, that I wanted to uh, share. Yeah. Well, and we, we discussed this yesterday as well. I think you know, the superheroes are the men and women in blue. I mean, they're, really, they're the ones that are putting their lives on the line. So it's funny, you know, the, the whole uh, – phrase you know, heroes don't wear capes it's very true you guys are the the batman and batwomen out there oh thank thank you very much I, I appreciate it it's a it's a blessing to have this job yeah now just on a complete tangent um 
Did you ever see the movie SWAT that they made? I did. <laughs> and how does that compare to real life SWAT? <laughs> of course, there's a lot of creative license uh, in, in that movie. <laughs> you know, the, the the uniforms looked authentic. The firearms, you know, looked authentic. But uh, again, a lot looks like they had a lot of fun filming that movie. And yes, a lot of creative license. Very entertaining. Yeah. Yeah, and then what about CSI? Does does your department CSI run around and scuba dive and jump out helicopters? And I, you know, I, I've got to tell you, James, I don't know if I've ever seen a full episode of CSI. I might have seen it walking by the television, you know, when one of my children was watching it. But <laughs> I understand there's some fantastic technology in that television show, and um, at the department I work for. It, Definitely world-class investigators um, handling the solving cases, and I'm very proud of them. Yeah, brilliant. I'm just, just curious because it looks like I think everyone wants to be a CSI if you get to run around and shoot people and skydive. And- <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> All right. Well, then, um, so I think we, we touched on this yesterday. Um you obviously been training with Billy. Uh, you've got the, the the combative side. You've now got the, the fitness as well. How did that serve you when you entered law enforcement, when you got to the academy? Yeah, great, great question. I felt more than ready uh, to enter the, the police academy. Again, I, I'd been training since a young boy, and my staple of fitness was hill sprints, bag work, pad work, sparring, Hundreds and hundreds of push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, and, of course, getting to the gym, uh, lifting weights at least four times a week. And, again, I think back then we were all doing, you know, three to five sets of 10 to 12 reps. You know, this is long before CrossFit came along. But, again, I thought it was a good foundation to get that strength reservoir, um, you know, for conditioning. So when I entered the police academy, I I was more than prepared. I felt like I did really well. The one thing that the police academy made me much better at was long distance running because we would go on long group runs. And I I had a good cardio base, but they certainly made me a much better runner. And we had incredible you know, fitness trainers at the academy. They were former collegiate athletes. They understood fitness. They understood nutrition, hydration. And during the breaks, they would be filling us with that information. So uh, by the time I left the police academy, I was a much better runner. Right. Now, what about the combative size in the academy? What were the kind of unarmed combat portions of that? Yeah, it was. I thought it was a great program because, again, we're, we're going back to the early 90s. And at the time, Brazilian jiu-jitsu was not prevalent in law enforcement. I'm sure the Gracies were here stateside, but the actual Brazilian jiu-jitsu techniques that you now see being practiced by law enforcement were not present. So looking back, I thought our academy did a great job, you know, weaving in the, the pugilistics, the defense, the takedowns, and ground control by use of wrestling and teaching us proper weapon retention. And again, Looking back then with our our instructors, they're working with up to 80 recruit officers and they're fully present and making sure everybody understands the techniques from, again, ground control, handcuffing, you know, the use of your baton. I thought they did a phenomenal job, you know, 
based on how many people they had to train, you know, each and every day. Now, what have you seen over your career as far as the evolution of that specific um, combatives training? Yes. And again, I was spoiled based on the department, uh, you know, I'm with and where I got my initial training. Uh, you know, we were spoiled. It, it seems like we were always cutting edge. And I want to say the early to mid-90s is my department put together a civilian review panel of probably a dozen world-famous martial artists. And I think it was about a dozen, maybe a little bit more. And they developed a committee. They had a law subcommittee. They had – um a medical subcommittee, then they had their SMEs, and they all got together and they just kind of picked what techniques would be prudent for the law enforcement officer. And this was all based on a a study that looked at over 5,000 reportable uses of force and what were those trends. And after looking at all these uses of force, how many went to the ground, how many, you know, ended, you know, with them handcuffing somebody standing up, did the suspect attack the officer with punches and kicks, did the suspect run away? When they looked at all of these in total, they came up with a system, if you will, that would help the officer, you know, handle an aggressive combative scenario, um, handle, you know, a passive resistance scenario and everything in between. So uh, we were quite fortunate to have that program, you know, begin with our agency. And then looking around the country, I've been traveling around the country for over 20 years, uh, you know, training, you know, law enforcement officers, tactical operators and defensive tactics and there's been quite an evolution. And I remember even as long as 10 years ago, there were some agencies that still did not teach ground control. And everything was, you know, standing. And that, so uh, we've come a long way. And since I started the academy to now, I believe there's a lot more emphasis on ground control, weapon retention, and basically, you know, how to, how to protect yourself in all facets, whether it's wrist and twist locks, pugilistics, defense, takedowns, and of course, uh, ground control. Yeah, well, you made a good point the other day as well when we chatted before about, you know, if I, for example, got into a, a street fight right now and used, you know, what I'd learned in my career, the ultimate goal would obviously to be to, to, to get to the point where you're safe, whether either you can run away or you knock the person out, choke the person out. But the average person doesn't think about this. The end goal for a police officer is to cuff them. So tell me about the challenges between how most martial arts are taught and and having to end that very, very specific situation. Yes. Yeah, so for civilians, for martial arts training, you know, the goal, of, of course, is to avoid confrontations. But if you're forced, if you're back in the corner, you have to defend yourself. You know, it is about, you know, defending yourself, getting away, then calling law enforcement. You know, that, that's the ultimate goal is, again, to hopefully avoid a physical confrontation. And law enforcement officers have the same mindset. We want to avoid physical confrontations. So getting back to the civilian side. Yes, create space, get away. Absolutely. Okay, now for the law enforcement officer, they have the added responsibility of now having to take that suspect into custody and placing them in the handcuffs. In addition, keeping in mind always that they have to use 
only reasonable and necessary force. They cannot cross that line. If they do, they are now the aggressor, and we just can't have that in our profession. So I think a lot of us underestimate just how challenging it actually must be to cuff a combative civilian. Absolutely. And that that is a an incredible skill set to have is to be able to be place yourself in a position where you can properly handcuff a person who is resisting and sometimes violently resisting. And I don't know if people really appreciate how difficult that is when somebody is fighting, they're emotional, they could be under the influence of narcotics. It's an, again, it, it can be incredibly difficult and when the officer is performing those techniques, again, they got to be mindful of, you know, only using reasonable and necessary force, good technique, while consistently communicating with that individual to stop resisting, trying to de-escalate that suspect's behavior. So just to add on to that, my own personal experience, we had Tim Kennedy bring the uh, sheepdog response class, him and his, his colleagues, and they taught the law enforcement side, they taught the civilian side, and it was eye-opening how the basic jujitsu that I had, and and you know the high-level jujitsu that some of the the men and women brought to the the classes, um, when you put it into a street fighting scenario, especially with weapons, and that's the thing is that you go talking about a weapon that the quote-unquote bad guy has, or the one that's strapped to every law enforcement officer that is easily grabbed as well. It completely changed the the way I looked at, at jujitsu from then from then onwards because. Now you're not pulling guard. You're not just, you know, lay and pray or any of that stuff. You are scrambling and fighting for your life. So it's a very, very different mindset than most people would find in a gym. Absolutely. Now, your Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioners will feel very comfortable bringing a fight to the ground. But for all the reasons you just mentioned, there's a firearm now present. You're on the law enforcement officer, sometimes on the suspect. That changes the whole game. The other thing that changes the game is you think of your regular Brazilian jiu-jitsu practice on the mat. There's no striking involved. Okay, there's rules. Now, when you get to the pavement arena and you're trying to take an aggressive combative suspect into custody and the fight goes to the ground, the techniques that you use in the gym on a matted surface um, – they can help, but they're going to be challenged because the person on the ground can be punching, they can be biting, they they can be kicking. They're, they're Again, they're moving in patterns that you're not used to uh, when you're with a trained person on the mat. It's very asymmetrical. And so, so those are some considerations when – you do conduct your ground control training is have a person again throw strikes use their legs move in unpredictable patterns and now you have to control that person trying to get them into handcuffs it can be quite a challenge if you don't have the proper training yeah and i think more than one person as well and i was growing up there was this nightclub in town called chippenham it was called gold diggers and I mean, every single Saturday we went, there'd be, you know, people bleeding on the sidewalks outside. And it was never Queensbury rules, put up your jukes, you know, 
everyone stops it once it's over. No, it was it was normally two or three would would attack someone. You know, maybe with broken beer bottle or you know pretty pretty horrific stuff. But yeah, it was never one on one. So I think that's another complacency thing. Is you know more often than not, and some of these cell phone videos that these turds tape of of someone attacking an officer, it's usually more than one person as well. Yeah, so that's definitely a consideration is multiple opponents. Um, you know, there's possibility of weapons on the person you're trying to take into custody. And again, um, if you're not training ground fighting with strikes, you're going to be at a disadvantage when you come across that person who is now punching and kicking from the ground and you're trying to take that person into custody. That's a whole nother dynamic that most people do not train at the Brazilian jiu-jitsu schools. Again, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, an incredible, incredible martial art. And I'm very thankful, you know, it came into our existence in law enforcement because it did make us better. But just take it one step further with your training partners have them introduce strikes. I mean, you don't have to bang each other in the head, but introduce strikes and learn how to defend against those strikes while you're trying to control somebody on the ground. It, it adds a whole different dynamic to your ground control game. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. The other thing that they would simulate in this sheepdog class was biting, eye gouging, fish hooking, you know, because there's, there's no rules on the street. And, you know, you, so people would, would be in guard and feel comfortable and then. Uh, for example, Tim would like freaking put his hand over his over your mouth and nose and just pinch. You know that's such a simple move, but a strong man could literally kill you just by smothering you. Yeah, you probably don't want to be pulling guard <laughs> on, on the street. You probably want to use your legs to create space uh, so you can escape. But hey, if it's a last resort, if it's one on one, well, you have some decisions to make, and you've got to get on it real quick to create that space and you know to. to ultimately take that person into custody. Yes, it's a whole new dynamic. I mean, there's hair pulling, there's grabbing of clothing, pull it over your head like hockey style. Again, anything goes in the pavement arena and you should train for all facets. Well, we've seen some great examples of where there clearly was training. Um, I saw a female officer the other day, like owning a guy that was basically, you know, trying trying to beat her up, throwing punches, and she took him down, clearly had wrestling and or some sort of jiu-jitsu skills and controlled no, him. Great. Yeah, it was, it was excellent. But then we also see the other side of the spectrum where, you know, these officers are either getting owned by the suspect that, that you know, shouldn't be physically or they're just repeatedly punching them in the head because that's all they know what to do. So um, ha- what do you think as an entire profession, um, let's say just in the US, how do some of these departments that maybe aren't, at the cutting edge, how do you, how do we elevate those departments and, and kind of create pressure to get them to do more pertinent training like that? Wow, that's, that's a that's a big ask <laughs> because uh, with, with our profession, um, there's a lot of agencies these days who are understaffed. They're working either three twelve or four ten shifts, and there's very you know, little off-duty time. And when I mean off-duty time, officers are expected to go to court. They're expected to, you know, work overtime. And there can be very little to no time. But um, I think most of your, you know, agencies out there know it's important. They, They just need to find the time and, you know, again, reintroduce these techniques to their officers 
and again, there, there's there's a balance because we are required to know so much. There's there's firearms qualification. There's you know updates on you know pursuit driving. I mean de-escalation. There is so much required of these officers. It's going to be up to the departments to you know recognize that this is a way to keep our officers safe. This is a way to keep the, you know civilians safe, and ultimately not have an excessive use of force uh, complaint or investigation by having our officers properly trained. Also, the onus is also on the officers. And if, you know, we're doing this profession, it is up to us as individuals to seek this type of training and explore training that protects us, that protects our partners, and ultimately the people we're sworn to protect. So, yeah, it it goes both ways. The department needs to put an emphasis on the training, you know, and then also the officer's need to know it's important, not, not only the defensive tactics training, but their physical conditioning as well. Yeah, and I, I get that answer a lot, and I agree 100%. That's what this podcast is about. It's in ownership of the individual and trying to to elevate awareness in, in employers as well. And, and I know we talked yesterday. I want to kind of make sure we cover it again. One thing that I'm really worried about at the moment, and we're seeing it now, sadly, we've lost firefighters and police in New York, um, several um, uh, police officers here in Florida now um, from the coronavirus. And, and the reason I started this was because I saw how the shift work, and especially, like you said, understaffing, which means overtime, mandatory overtime, is really destroying you know, the health, physical and mental health of a lot of our men and women. And I th- I'm so you know worried about what we're going to see with our first responders as this virus goes through, because the perception is that they are these superheroes. And the reality is what we've asked them to do so much with so little in a lot of these departments, I think that they're a lot less resilient than people realize. And they do have, you know, what we see with the CME's deaths, oh, they had underlying health conditions. Yeah, I think a lot of them do. That's that's the point. And they shouldn't. Yes, yes. It's, um, again, I think all first responders right now uh, are tasked. You know, there's an incredible awareness of what we can do to help mitigate this situation all while, you know, performing uh, our, our duty in protecting and serving. So I guess for the first responders out there listening, there, there needs to be an emphasis on recovery. And so during these times, and again, I'm not a doctor, but I can tell you what I've been doing for the last 28 years that, that has helped me uh, stay healthy and, you know, little to no injuries ever in my career have been absolutely blessed and the, the emphasis needs to be on recovery and that begins with sleep uh, most officers are sleeping anywhere from you know four to six hours a night and there is science that states that is not good the answer is you know seven to ten most officers will tell you they can't get seven hours sleep they can only get five based on lifestyle or you know th- that's all they can sleep well if you can only get five or six hours sleep, you need to maximize your current environment, whether it's blackout curtains, removing electronics from your bedroom, you know, again, practicing good sleep hygiene, um, and reducing the temperature down to 68 degrees, and, you know, just trying to maximize the time that, that you're in bed and get as much restful sleep as you can. 
there should also be emphasis on hydration. Again, you know, the experts will tell you drink half your body weight in ounces. Well, that it's all going to depend on, you know, your sweat rate, your activity level, you know, where you live in the country, you know, if, if it's hot, if it's humid, the gear that you're currently, um, you know, carrying. So again, your listeners should explore proper hydration and what that means to them. And, and then the other part is uh, nutrition, is eating real food, okay, and, and eating food on a, you know, again, snacking on a consistent basis to keep their energy levels high. And so, again, it is a challenge when you're working these 10 and 12-hour shifts. You can, so, again, a recap, uh, sleep, hydration, nutrition, those are the big three. Uh, I was very fortunate enough to meet a doctor, and uh, he's a friend of mine, uh, Dr. John Sullivan. And I asked him to come speak to my SWAT team years ago. And he told us that when he works with professional athletes or any high performers, he begins with the big three, sleep, hydration, and nutrition. And so, um, yeah, and again, uh, you know, the physical fitness, we need to move our bodies. And we want to do those things before we start exploring the other, you know, recovery methods such as, you know, get good at those first. Get good at the big three, then begin exploring, you know, whether it's grounding, whether it's breath work, meditation, all of these are fabulous recovery methods. But get the big three down first and then then move on to the other methods that, that will help you be even more resilient. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. And I think that's, again, another perfect example of the, of the ownership of the individual and the administration. The individual needs to be responsible when they get off shift, but then the administration needs to understand that, you know, staffing creates a healthier workforce. And if you're understaffed and asking your men and women to work longer hours, they are, they're going to break. It's as simple as that. Yeah, and I think most administrations do a good job in educating the officers and they, they put it out there again when, you know, police officers have to do double shifts because, the, you know, there's an officer shortage. That's one thing. But most departments, when I travel, you know, they're telling their officers, you know, hey, listen, you know, get your sleep, do this. But the officers need to follow through. And I've worked with some agencies where the officers are on eight-hour shifts. And they still tell me they are sleeping four and a half to five hours. And you ask them why. <laughs> and, you know, and th there's all kinds of reasons. But, um, again, they have to, again, look at sleep like they're looking at their workouts. Because there's some guys who will never miss a workout. And if you you sleep and recovery in the same light you do, your physical conditioning, like, hey, you want to go attack it? Um, life will get a lot better for you real quick. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, then, speaking of fitness, you touched on it a minute ago. I'd love to hear how you came across CrossFit. <laughs> I first learned about CrossFit, I, I'm going to say it was approximately 2005. I was teaching a hostage rescue class in Jacksonville, Florida with my partner. And during one of the breaks, I was talking to one of the operators on the on the team uh, in Jacksonville, and his name was T.J. Cooper. And your listeners will probably recognize T.J. because I believe he's one of your podcast guests a little while ago. Yes, about, it actually came up just the other day on my Facebook memory, so it was pretty much exactly a year ago. Yes, and 
So TJ and I are talking during the break, and he's telling me all about this new workout program he's doing called CrossFit. And he's referring to the head trainer as coach, which I thought was kind of interesting because I hadn't heard that term in years. And he advised me that he was flying out to Santa Cruz, and he was helping to teach these three-day certification classes. And he was actually staying with Coach Greg Glassman, and he's staying at his house, and they were doing these three-day certifications, and it consisted of powerlifting, Olympic lifting, sprint work, gymnastics, and they were mixing all of these movements into one workout. And then he told me, he says, George, if you're working out more than 20 minutes, you're training too long. And I started thinking about what he was saying, and I was looking at my own physical fitness program, which consisted of bag work, calisthenics, weight training, pull-ups, hill sprints, pad work. (laughs) When I looked at all of the things I enjoyed doing at a high intensity, my bag work, my sprint work, pad work, my push-up and pull-up complex, and at the time I was playing with kettlebells, when I was hitting all those methods with high intensity, I wasn't training more than 20 minutes. So I was thinking, wow, I think TJ's on to something. So I came back uh, to California, and I remember logging on to the main page of CrossFit. And I started looking out at the workout of the day. And I was reading the workouts of the day, and I'm scrolling through. And so what I did is I started removing exercises out of that workout and replacing it with um, striking combinations. So I was playing with that, and and I was enjoying a lot of success with that. And when I traveled and when I was teaching defensive tactics, working with law enforcement officers and tactical athletes, I would want to give them that experience of a small, brief training workout that just lasted a couple of minutes that felt like a fight. And so, again, we had some sprint work there. We had some, you know, air squats. We had push-ups, and we had striking combinations. And I would mix it into this mini workout, if you will. And the feedback was overwhelming. They would say, George, that felt like a fight. Holy cow, that was incredible. And I had had a lot of operators tell me, you know, you need to teach this. And again, these were just workouts I was doing at home, but I was sharing with the tactical operators when I traveled. And so over time, I, I knew I had something. I knew I was onto something because when I shared it with my friends and, and I shared it with athletes I respected, and they're coming back to me saying, that was incredible. Holy cow, I'm smoked. So I actually wrote a proposal. And um, to CrossFit, I think if we add striking, again, as a specialty course, I, I think people really benefit from it. And so Coach Greg Gassman actually contacted me as himself and said, George, uh, we're going to do it. And I want you to meet Dave Castro. And Dave Castro is going to get a group of athletes for you. You're going to get on the University of San Diego. And you, you're going to do a test run on the course. And so I met Dave. He got some incredible athletes. We had a couple Navy SEALs, some longtime box owners. And then I asked if I could bring a couple of athletes who were non-crossfitters because 
I wanted CrossFit striking to be inclusive. I wanted it to be for everybody, not just high-performing athletes or high-performing CrossFitters. I wanted it to be for the day one CrossFitter who walked into a gym, really didn't know the movements, but were able to you know, take the class, participate in the class, and enjoy the class. So that is my journey in CrossFit. 2005, you know, talking to TJ Cooper, it all started with a conversation. And then as a result of that, we ended up with CrossFit striking. So what have you seen as far as um, the evolution of strength and conditioning in the tactical athlete space, you know, the department that you work for and departments that you've seen around the country? Yes, I, I would say right around that time, we started seeing CrossFit kind of um, kind of spread throughout the law enforcement community, the tactical athlete community. And I thought that was a great thing because uh, people got better and I – I believe, again, CrossFit's prescription of, you know, broad physical fitness, I, I thought was absolutely brilliant. You know, the high intensity part, the functional movement part, the, the constantly varied part, because ultimately that's our job. It's constantly varied. It requires functional movement to get through the day. And at times it can be intense. So I thought CrossFit came along right at the right time. I noticed with the law enforcement officers and especially the, the tactical operators, they were leaning towards doing more CrossFit type workouts. And I think most of you tactical athletes, most of your operators are using CrossFit as their physical fitness program, or they're doing variations of it. They may not even be calling CrossFit, but they're definitely mixing in the gymnastics, the Olympic lifting, sprint work, um, it, compared to the old days where people would run three, four, five miles, do a set of push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, and they'd call it a workout. So definitely think there's more of an emphasis on functional movement. There's more an emphasis on strength training and having that strength reservoir to do this uh, this job. And of course, making sure we have the proper muscle endurance uh, to get through uh, our task and to get through our shifts. So um, yeah, there you go. So another perspective I'd like to get is I have seen in my time in CrossFit, which is basically 14-ish years now, um, how it is definitely partly responsible for reframing, you know, quote unquote, what women can do. So now you've got these incredible female athletes, you know, doing amazing things and basically outlifting, outworking many men in gyms all over the country. Um, and I've seen that have an effect in the fire service. Some of the women now, you know, that, that come in are incredibly strong and, you know, can outwork many of the men, if not all the men on the fire ground too. Are you seeing the 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 effect of CrossFit in the female candidates too? Like you're just getting a, a much bigger pool of women. Now they're actually being, I, I guess that self-belief, that enabling that they can do the same thing as a man? You know, James, answer that question, absolutely. And I think that is the beauty of CrossFit is since day one, CrossFit has been inclusive for everybody, you know, regardless of gender, regardless of age, regardless of, you know, your day one physical capabilities. Over time, CrossFit gets you good at a lot of different skills. It trains all three energy systems and allows that athlete, whether male or female, to fulfill their potential. So, yes. Uh, I, I definitely agree with you. I think men and women are both more physically prepared, more mentally prepared to take on the job as a first responder these days. 
All right, so I want to get on to de-escalation in a second, just before we do some closing questions. But before I do that, you touched on CrossFit striking, which basically you'd worked with Greg Glassman and established, and that's now the striking workshop. So tell me how that's evolved and then where people can access that. Yeah, so the class I teach now is called the striking workshop. It is the same programming and, of course, the same coach as CrossFit striking. We still have a great relationship with CrossFit. We're still friends. We're just under a different banner at this time. And so what it entails is teaching athletes how to properly add striking and striking combinations to their workouts. And people may ask, well, hey, why do I want to do that? Is CrossFit enough? And yes, CrossFit is absolutely brilliant. But what the striking component does, it helps you build, again, more core strength, adds variance to your training, and now it adds that rotational speed and power that you may not have gotten with other exercises. And what I tell people, there's four main things that I think you get from adding striking to your workouts. Number one, you get to feel what it's like to have a fighter's fitness level. Now, I do believe the CrossFitters are the best athletes on the planet, but if you were to look at professional sports, if we were to look at baseball, basketball, hockey, football, hey, you can even throw in soccer. If you took the best athletes from all those sports and then you added a high-level striker from the UFC, I guarantee that fighter would have a better overall GPP, a general physical preparedness. And the reason, a big reason for that is their striking workouts because striking is, is at a higher tempo and a higher frequency than most other athletic movements, okay? Because I mean, just by nature, it's, it's more intense, it's more ballistic, and it's done at a higher frequency. So people get to what it's like to have that fighter's fitness level. Though in a fighting class, we're exploiting striking and, you know, again, for our physical preparedness. The, the other thing I advise athletes, it helps with that, that rotation, okay, that rotational speed and power. So I'll ask you, James, give me a couple of your favorite movements or exercises in CrossFit. Um, rope climbs and double unders. So if we think we're going in a straight line all the way up, we think of double unders, we remain stationary. And let's add pull-ups, push-ups, presses. They're very linear in fashion. Okay, but to be functional to life and to be successful in sport, we need the ability to rotate. And I think that's where striking fits in nicely. The other reason is and in striking, when you're throwing your combinations, I'm asking the athletes to quickly sidestep after each and every combination to get off that X, to move. And again, you think you're tactical operators, you think you're police officers. Very important to have that lateral movement, that side, that quick sidestep, because that is very rarely ever practiced in a gym, okay, unless, unless you're in, in the fight game, of course. So it's important to have that skill set. It's important to have that movement pattern to be able to move laterally, okay, and not just stay stationary or in a linear fashion. And finally, the fourth reason is it's a great foundation for self-protection, Though it's not a fighting class, we're learning skill sets that nicely carry over to the self-protection space. So in recap, you get, you, know, you get to experience the fighting fitness level. You get the rotational speed and power. We've got a sport-specific movement when we're sidestepping. And, of course, it's a great self-protection skill. And 
If folks are interested, they're welcome to go to r3tactical.com or they can go to, uh, they can say hello to me on Instagram. It's George Ryan 3 uh, on Instagram. Yeah, and that brings up a very interesting point. I, there was kind of some funny memes going around, I don't know, probably three years ago where the high level of strength and fitness that people had was almost perceived as well in that case I must have a fight and, and those are two very different things as you know when you see brand new people walk in the gym that look like they're athletic phenoms and you know they're just like baby deers when it comes to striking and kicking so adding that striking now you can at least utilize that fitness and that strength that you have with some actual repetitions of strikes and you no, it's a great point it's going to make you more athletic striking it's again it's a rudimentary functional movement that involves the core okay and you've heard crossfit when they say from core to the extremity so when we're teaching we say from the floor through the core to the extremity because all the power begins from the floor your your striking begins from the floor okay if you pick up one foot from the floor and try to strike, you don't have the same potential power. But when you're well-grounded, you're athletic, you're on the balls of your feet, you can explode. So that's one of the mantras is from the floor, through the core, to the extremity. Yeah, and I, and I love it. I did, uh, I forget what happened. I think we had some bad weather and I put some of my athletes at the gym through that. People that are you know, pretty good shape normally and just adding that punch bag component it, it destroyed him in a good way. And it wasn't yes. like trying to beat him into the ground, but it was a, a new movement. And even myself just doing this bag work the last couple of weeks, um, I realized how tight I am twisting, you know, the rotational, even, even when I do the yoga movements I started doing now. So yeah, there is that freezing the same way as I, I love the strongman stuff because you pointed out we do stay in the same position a lot in CrossFit. We in the supinated grip a lot in CrossFit. So changing those holds, moving weight over distance, pushing, pulling, um, you know, and then adding this rotational force. These are other tools that I think really address those weak links to a make us better athletes and b better for injury. Oh, it's a great, great point, James. Again, I've worked with numerous high-level athletes. And when you introduce the heavy bag or the focus mitts or the Muay Thai pads, in a very short time, they realize, wow, that was an incredible workout. I've never felt that. I haven't felt that since the first time I've done Fran. <laughs> so again, and I want your listeners to think about this. And again, when you're doing multiple combinations on a bag at a high intensity, it is a whole different frequency, a whole different tempo than other athletic movements you're used to. And, you know, your listeners can test it out for themselves. Again, get a good pair of bag gloves, get with a good coach, and just ask to attack that bag for just just give me one, one minute. <laughs> and now you look at your professional fighters, uh, somebody like a Tim Kennedy who can do multiple two, three-minute rounds on a bag at a high-intensity, high output. And that is a whole different uh, level of athleticism. Yeah, exactly. And for us, you know, it's it's specific. I mean, you know, for you guys especially, you might be, you know, fighting for your life and um the police and, and EMS, oh, excuse me, the fire and EMS side, you know, we get the combative patients too. So, you know, the it's another tool in the toolbox. 
Now, I, I want to touch on that just for a moment, and then we'll transition to some closing questions. But the de-escalation. So you, you know, are on the SWAT team, like you're talking about hostage negotiations and all these these things that you've done. Definitely, specifically in law enforcement, sometimes even in what we do. What are some of the principles that you use to de-escalate? Like obviously, there's going to be a certain trigger point where if it's too quick, you're not going to have the opportunity. But if you're approaching the scenes to make it go the right way rather than, God forbid, deadly force either, either direction. No, you're absolutely right. If you do have the time, okay, and it's safe to do so, um, and it isn't immediate, it requires immediate action. If you do have the time, this is my suggestion when I work with officers is try to make that human connection. Okay. Uh, the, the person on the other end, although they're a suspect, uh, they're, they're human. And our, our goal as law enforcement officers is the preservation. One of our many goals, I should say, is the preservation of human life. And so working with officers, I tell them, make that human connection, build rapport. And, and again, try to get some time to help decompress that situation. Okay. And then our goal is to kind of help bring this event to a peaceful resolution. Okay, very, very important. And by using de-escalation techniques, whether it's your body language, your, your verbalization, the tactics you're using, the goal is to help reduce the intensity of that event while maintaining control of that situation. Okay, and again, buy the time, build the rapport, and, and then just kind of keep assessing that situation a, as you're working through it. And again, this ultimately helps us mitigate the need to use force or use a higher level of force so yeah as a recap uh james is again make that human connection build the rapport ask open-ended questions hey what what's going on it could be a huge misunderstanding and ultimately and hopefully we can take this person into custody uh without the use of force yeah and and i've seen um just as a side note you know several scenes where the the medic for example was just burnt out like so tired so sleep deprived um and their initial reaction on scene was one that could have ended up being very bad for them and i can imagine the law enforcement world is the same so i always wonder in some of these these officer involved shootings um you know vice either way again the officer lost their life or the citizens did how much sleep deprivation factors into some of those momentary bad decisions yeah, that, that wow, that that could be a topic for a whole uh, podcast. Sleep deprivation, you know, emotional regulation, you know, decision making. Yeah, that that could be a topic for uh, another uh, podcast. But getting back to de-escalation, it, it's also important. Again, we we talked about again. You need the time to be able to do that. And again, the officers listening, remember this: we should be de-escalating. De We've always de-escalated situations. It's more of a term that we've been using the last couple of years, but um, I've known, I mean, in my 28 years, I've seen officers do this time and time again and do an incredible job, you know, just kind of decompressing the situation, bringing it to a peaceful resolution, using tactics, using verbalization, but understanding it doesn't mean that an officer should compromise his or her safety while doing so. And, and I do think there are some people in, in the law enforcement communities who say, that's what we're trying to teach is, you know, to compromise safety. No, no, no. Uh, again, if we've got the time to do so, and again, if it's reasonable, then absolutely try to de-escalate, bring this situation to a peaceful resolution, and, um, and that's better for everybody. 
Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions. Um, first one is, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be something we've discussed today or something completely different. Yes. Now, I, I have several. And uh, my, my all-time favorite book is an, a book called Yanni, is Hero of Entebbe by Max Hastings. And I read that book in college. And I knew for years, even in high school, that I wanted to be a SWAT officer. And reading that book in college gave me that, just that final push of why it was important to have a purpose bigger than you, to work part of a team, and to have love of your country. Because the book is about Jonathan Yanni Netanyahu, who was a lieutenant colonel in the Israeli Special Forces. And when you read the book, you understand his passion for his country, his, you know, um, his teammates, and having a purpose bigger than himself. So that, that was that book I always go back to. And I always remember where I was when I was reading it. And that kind of gave me that final nudge that, you know, you need to be a SWAT officer. You need to be part of a life-saving organization uh, that's purpose is to help people, protect people, and to make a community community safer. So th that is my all-time favorite book. If we're talking about other books that have had an impact, uh, the other book is called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. An incredible, incredible read. Um, I believe your listeners would really enjoy that because that book is about presence. And as a tactical operator, as a first responder, you need to be present in that moment. Whether it's your next room entry or you're on the firearms range, uh, you know, shooting what is the most important entry? It's the next one, the one you're doing now. And so that is an incredible book about being present, being in the now, and it makes life so, so much easier when you are present. I would say a book for high performers, there's two books I would recommend. It's a book that was recently uh, published, and I won't say the word out loud, but I'll spell it F-U-C-K, Your Feelings by Ryan Muncie. I look at that book, and that is a book for high performers. It, it is a it's a human performance manual, incredible book about how to manage emotions. It's got science in there. It's brilliantly written. Another book I'd recommend for your high performers and your first responders is The Brain Always Wins by Dr. John Sullivan. Those, those are two great books. Brilliant. Thank you. I've heard some of them um, recommended before. I've never had Eckhart Tolle recommended, but I'm, I'm familiar with him. Yes. I used to listen to some of the audio books back a few years ago, and and he's <laughs> even he as a person is fascinating to watch and listen to talk because he he seems to have actually managed to grasp that that presence to the point where um, I don't even know how you describe it. Like you can see that he is nowhere but right now. If that makes sense. <laughs> that that is a perfect description. And every time I read that book, I. I get something new out of it. And again, it's it's a book I, I, I turn to at least once a year. I'll just pick it up, break it open, read a couple passages. And yeah, it, it's a brilliant read. Brilliant. Okay. Well, then same question, but a movie. You have any favorite movies? Yes. My favorite movie is Rudy. <laughs> uh, it's, it, I, are you familiar with it? Yeah, that's the underdog story football uh, movie with the guy from Lord of the Rings. Yes, that's... That's my uh, favorite movie, uh, Rudy. Again, about willpower, perseverance, and just never giving up. Absolutely. That's my favorite movie. Brilliant. And then what about a documentary? Have any of those struck you recently? 
You know, my favorite documentary, again, it goes back to uh, probably sports and my love for baseball was Ken Burns's uh, documentary about baseball. I, I thought that was brilliant and uh, thought it was brilliantly done. But that's, that's, that's the one that comes to mind right now. Excellent. Yeah, he's done so many. I just finished his Vietnam series and it was incredible. So, so well put and, and so, um, you know, it told both sides of the story, you know, and made it a human story rather than them versus us. And you know what? And that's what he did with baseball. You, you realize, you know, that ba- baseball, it's about life. And that, that's what it comes down to is baseball have so many parallels with life. And, and that's why it's such a beautiful sport. I would say I don't watch a lot of TV. Uh, I just don't. But um, I'd say my favorite television show, it was recommended by a good friend, was a show called Bosch on Amazon Prime. And I don't watch a lot of law enforcement shows. I just don't. But that show is brilliantly done. It's a brilliant story. Brilliant. Okay, well, I have to look that up. I'm always looking for a new show. We're doing, um, oh my God, it's called The Act. I think it is at the moment. It was the woman who raised her child to think that she had all these terminal diseases and she actually didn't. And she ended up murdering her, well, her, she, her boyfriend murdered her mother in the end. A very tragic tale, but it's such a, a fascinating view of, you know, childhood trauma and, and uh, shifting reality to the point where it's, you know, this tragic ending. But yeah, very very powerful one on Hulu. Um, okay, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Oh, that's a great question, James. Well, you've already had Jeff Nichols on. You've had Greg Amundsen on. <laughs> so there's two guys I, I would recommend uh, for your podcast that I think would really resonate with your listeners. First would be Ryan Muncie, the author I mentioned earlier. I think he'd be a fascinating guest. And I think another fascinating guest is a gentleman I invited to speak to my SWAT team one afternoon. And it, it's somebody I, I speak with when, when I want to learn more about sports science is Dr. John Sullivan. Uh, both individuals have worked with law enforcement, have worked with military, and worked with high performers. And I think they would absolutely crush it on this podcast. Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate that. Um, all right. So then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, um, what do you do to decompress? Oh, this is a great question. And that begins uh, each and every morning when I, when I wake up, uh, I, I, I say my prayers. I speak to God every morning. As a matter of fact, I speak to him all day. <laughs> so definitely prayer followed by breath work. I, I'll do at least 10 minutes of breath work and then I'll get up. I'll drink about 16 to 20 ounces of water. Usually I'll have lemon or electrolytes in there and then I'll go meditate for at least 10 minutes a day. And um, meditation has been you know, part of uh, my day since I've been in 10th grade. So that is kind of how I start my day. And then during the day, it's breath work, visualization. I, I, I have a very personal mantra I say to myself. And yeah, I, I find life to be easy when, you know, we're centered, when we're present and, you know, and we give it to God. Right. Well, you said um, meditation since 10th grade. What was it that got you in that young? I was in English class. It was 10th grade and our professor came into the room one day, I'll never forget it. He turned off the lights 
and he asked us to put our books underneath our seat because we had these little book holders. He said, put our hands on the desk, and he was going to walk us through a meditation. And I remember some of the kids in the classroom kind of giggling, you know, under their breath, and I'm kind of looking around. It was kind of odd, right? And But I looked at him, and he was so serious and genuine about wanting to share this with us. And so we did a meditation practice that consisted of visualization, and he walked us through it. And I remember him doing a countdown to the meditation, five, four, three, two, one, he, and then we got into the, the meditation. It was more of a visualization. And we did it for about 10 minutes, and then he kind of counted backwards, and then we ended the meditation session. And he told us about all the incredible benefits of meditation. And I believed him. And so I started practicing on my own, and it just became part of my, kind of my daily routine. And I have since changed. I use a more of a mantra-based meditation now. But it's always something I did before big events, uh, any thing that was really important. I put myself in meditation, begin my day with meditation, and it has just made life so much easier. And now I share it with as many officers as I can. I've written about it. I actually teach officers how to begin. And so, yeah, I, I think meditation uh, for your listeners out there is an absolute game changer. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I started doing it with the app Headspace and just just a 10 minute a day, you know, guided one. It was, it was incredible. Um, all right. Well, this is episode 300. So before we wrap up and make sure that everyone knows where you are, explain the significance of 300 to you. Yeah. So I asked you if I could be guest 300 because my operator number in SWAT was 300. So it had a very special meaning to me, the number three very special to me so when i seen your episodes and i follow you and i follow your guest on the podcast i look and we have talked about this probably for over a year james is coming on the podcast i said whoa wait a minute we're getting close to 300 <laughs> let me let me ask james if it's possible to be guest 300 and uh you were kind enough to uh, give me that number so thank you very much well, no, I'm so glad that we could because I wanted to have some significance with each of the, the big numbers. The first one was my wife. The second one was actually kind of revisiting with her, doing some Q&As and the, the listeners and then my boys as well, my son and my stepson. Um, and uh, so I was wondering, you know, what was going to be 300 because you don't want to put any one guest in, you know, on, on, a, on a pedestal. But now with that pertinent you know, element to it, I thought it was perfect. So thank you for reaching out. No, that, 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 was, that was huge. Thank you very much. I, I, I appreciate that, James. One thing that I, I've kind of come across is that, you know, let's take for the UFC, for example, you know, you've got the, the striking, you've got the wrestling, you've got the, the jiu-jitsu, the judo, if you do that, the, you know, the, the, the Muay Thai. And, and I'm always curious as to how people are able to train all those elements. And these are professional fighters. So for the average person... Um, what do you, what's your advice as far as finding a style or even combining certain styles for, you know, for, for the average Joe walking on the street? No, that's a great question, James. And again, officers, when choosing a style or a system or going to a class, you want to make sure it's well balanced with, whether you have your stand up, you know, your pugilistics, your defense, you have your takedowns, your control, and you have your ground control as well. And you know, again, with wrist and twist locks, you'll need those as well. 
But uh, any system, again, it starts with command presence and verbalization as it pertains to law enforcement. And then we kind of build from there. But when you're choosing to practice a technique or combination and you're bringing that into your defensive tactics repertoire, you want to make sure it passes a three-prong criteria. It has to pass and meet all three prongs. That first prong is that technique, that combination, the reversal, that escape, whatever it is, it has to be easily learned. It can't have so many multiple steps that it just isn't reasonable. Because remember, we're out in the pavement arena, if you will, okay? We're not on a matted surface. We have a wool uniform. We have if you're in a patrol setting, you're wearing about 20, 22 pounds of gear. You have a ballistic soft body armor. You have a Sam Brown, what have you. You have to be able to make these techniques work. And so your first prong, that technique needs to be easily learned. The second prong, the technique needs to be readily recalled. And what I mean by readily recalled is readily recalled in a dynamic, fluid, adrenalized situation. Can you recall that technique? Can you pull it off in that chaotic, asymmetrical environment if you're attacked? And finally, the third prong, it needs to be highly effective. So if you look at all three, prong, three prongs, easily learned, readily recalled, highly effective, that's a good test for if you should bring that technique, that combination, that reversal, that escape into your repertoire. If it meets all three prongs, that is a good technique. There's a lot of sport-based techniques out there. They're great for sport. They're great for winning tournaments. And people look magnificent pulling them off in the dojo. However, ask yourself, is it easily learned, readily recalled, highly effective for my arena when I'm, you know, in a potential use of force situation. I think that's a, that's a good guide. No, absolutely. And it's kind of something I've talked about a little bit on here is in the jiu-jitsu world, for example, there are so many incredible techniques and, and different angles and ways of doing things. However, if you look at most fights, it's usually rear naked choke, armbar, guillotine, you know, a couple of others that the basics. The, the, yeah, exactly. So, you know, it, it's, I forget the exact um, parable, but there was one with a rabbit and a fox. And the rabbit, when it was chased, always ran into into the hole. And the fox but it was bragging about all the different ways it can escape. And then when the hounds came after him, that it was frozen because it couldn't decide which one to choose. So that's it kind of reminded me of that. But yeah, I mean, if you fall to your level of training, so if you're not drilling the basics... You know, even if your law enforcement officers don't have the time to go to a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school or submission wrestling school, um, there is an incredible resources online. I mean, we've got YouTube now. Uh, Boss Rutten has a DVD set called The Big DVDs of um, – I'm trying to think if it's of MMA, but it's called The Big DVDs of Combat. But it's an incredible set where he shows a submission – and then he shows an escape. And they're really not complicated. And it's ones that he made up that are very highly effective. And I, I got an opportunity to train with Boss and what an incredible, incredible martial artist. But when I teach ground fighting to officers, I, I teach about anywhere from 14, 15 techniques. Most of them are reversals, escapes that are very easy to learn. 
uh, very highly effective and not real complicated. And, you know, for the officers out there, that's pretty much what you need to create that space so you can escape and you can get your other tools. You can get your partner involved with taking that person into custody. It doesn't have to be real elaborate. So I don't want the officers out there to be intimidated that you have to invest, you know, you know, four nights a week, you know, every week, you, you know, to, um, you know, to submission wrestling. That'd be nice. That'd be ideal. But if you could just master a handful of techniques to keep you safe, again, beginning with sprawling, staying on your feet, creating space, uh, begin there. And look at the basics. Master the basics, and and you'll you'll be good to go. Again, ideal. We could train four nights a week, every week at a high intensity, absolutely. But for the average officer, going to court in the morning, working a full shift, working overtime, very little to no time to sleep. On the days off, master the basics. You'll be in a better position than you are today. Love it. Actually, I had Bass on the show as well, and he was a, a wealth of knowledge. And I, I mean, talk about walking the walk. That guy, <laughs> he uh, he certainly knows how to how to take care of himself. And you hear his story with bullies; it's hilarious. It was, there was no turn the other cheek. When they learned how to fight, they went back and basically beat up everyone that had ever picked on them. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that 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 sounds like Bass. He, he's a he's an incredible martial artist. Uh, probably one of my favorite martial artists. I, I had the ability, uh, I'm going to strike that. I had the opportunity to train with Boss, and I consider him a friend. What a lot of people don't know about Boss Rutan is that he has an incredible world-class ground game. And I remember speaking to him several years ago, and he was up to maybe nine or ten years where he had never been submitted, and he would train. He had trained with world class grapplers from all over the world, and he had never been submitted. And so, I think a lot of people think his boss is a striker, and they should, but they should all. But people should look at boss as an incredible world class ground practitioner as well. Absolutely, and even his his whole um, theory on open hand striking, you know, as a. As an officer, you know, you break your hand, now you can't use your weapon. That's a, that's a big deal as well. So that was a yeah. really fun conversation with him. Oh, yeah. We have yeah 27 small bones in our hands, and we're pro- they, it probably wasn't designed to punch. <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing. <laughs> right. Well, George, it's been a great, great conversation. I want to make sure we just kind of underline again where people can find you online. So tell me where they can find um, the striking workshop and then where they can find you on social media. Yes. So the striking workshop, you can find it at r3tactical.com. And on social media, it's George Ryan 3. It's the number three, George Ryan 3. And that's on Instagram. And uh, feel free to send me a direct message if you have any questions. Uh, glad to help. And I publish a lot of workouts online, and that's all free as well. Brilliant. All right. Well, I want to say thank you so much. It's been such a fun conversation. I'm glad that we were able to do it, not only at all, but but on a on an episode that actually resonated with you as well. So thank you for sharing your knowledge and your experience with us. James, thank you. And to all the listeners out there, uh, be safe. Godspeed. Godspeed.